This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the fur bearers. There's been a lot of talk about the wildlife trade since the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic hit the global stage in early 2020. While much of the attention has been paid to locales overseas, the United States is also involved in the wildlife trade. In fact, more than $2 billion of items, that's over 400 million individual items, were imported to the United States in 2014 alone. Faunalytics, a nonprofit that conducts research and shares knowledge to help advocates help animals effectively, took 15 years of legal wildlife import data and analyzed it. The results are staggering. I was joined by Carol Orzachowski, Faunalytics Content Director, to discuss the Wildlife Trade Report, the Canadian Connection, and what we can all do to make a difference. I thought the place to start with this one is to let's talk about what the wildlife trade is. When in in this con in this context of this interview what we're looking at because it's a very broad subject and i think that's one of the things that comes across in the first paragraph of the special report you put together is that it's just a giant subject it is a giant subject and you know phonolytics wanted to do something about this um partly because it's an important issue and and partly because uh you know the data was there um so what this data represents is a look at the legal U.S. wildlife import statistics. So let me break that down. It's looking very specifically at the legal trade of wildlife um, and wildlife parts. And it's looking at imports into the U.S. specifically. So it's not looking at, obviously, exports from the U.S. It's not looking at different countries trading with each other uh, in that context. And it's specifically looking at the legal trade. So it's not looking at things like, um, you know, poaching or um, black market trading of, of certain items, although that does factor into it a little mm-hmm. bit. So to your question about, you know, what exactly is the wildlife trade? Well, um, for all kinds of different reasons, people uh, capture wildlife and uh, either alive or dead and trade them amongst each other. It can be for fashion. It can be for meat. It can be for uh, traditional medicines. It can be for simply just trinkets like, you know, shells and, and things like that. Um, you know, the scope of the way that people use wildlife, um, is pretty broad. And that's something that we see in the data, you know, we've got, um, when you look at the, you know, the different items that are traded, uh, you've got everything from live specimens to jewelry, to, you know, hair products, to eggs, to meat, um, you know, you've got everything from ivory carvings to, uh, you know, uh, garments, leathers, um, you know, trophies from trophy hunts, uh, you name it. And, and it's probably part of the wildlife trade in, in some way, shape or form. It, it is pretty astounding to look at the data as well. And this, this is all laid out in, and this is one of my favorite things about Faunalytics and why I am a supporter myself is the, not only does this outline everything, this wonderful report, um, and it feels weird calling it wonderful, but it is exceptionally well done. It's got all of the information, but then it all you also have these great graphics that help with scope. Because I think that is one of the problems here when we're talking about this mm-hmm. issue, is we're not talking about, you know, someone sneaking in a little bit of stuff or... Uh, not even sneaking, we're talking legal. So we're not, you know, it's it's not a small volume of items going into the United States. Uh, we're looking at nearly like a billion dollars um, per year at some points uh, in imports. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep, and sometimes more, um, you know, oftentimes more than a billion dollars in imports. Uh, we're talking about 3.2 billion live organisms over the course of 15 years. Um you know, for animal advocates out there, 
you know, 3.2 billion over 15 years, uh, unfortunately is actually on the lower end of, uh, you know, our exploitation of animals. When you look at, um, yeah. you know, animals used for food, uh, it's, you know, in some ways these numbers pale in comparison to, uh, to other uses of animals, but at the same time, uh, when you think about 3.2 billion organisms taken from the wild, um, over the course of 15 years, I mean, that's not insignificant, you know, it's, it's extremely high and it sort of speaks to, yeah, like you're saying this, the scope and, and the breadth of this issue. Um, and we'll get a little more into some of that. I think, uh, let's talk about, and I'm just looking at my question list because it is a morning and I'm only on my second coffee, but uh, <laughs> no problem. when you looked at this, so you, you said like we had the data, let's dig into it. Was there a hypothesis behind that or was it very simply the, we have all of this information and this is a subject mm -hmm. that has been talked about a great deal largely as a result of a lot of the theories as to where the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus came from. Um, right. Was that part of the prompting for this or was this a project already in the works? Uh, interest, it's interesting that you asked that because it actually was a project that was already in the works. Um, I believe it was already in the works before uh, uh, COVID sort of, you know, came into public consciousness and, and became a thing. Um, so this data is obviously it's not it's not data that Faunalytics collected it's uh, data that was collected by um, the U.S. Law Enforcement Management Information System or LEMIS um, and by the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, they are the folks who uh, who collect this data um, and again that's part of the reason why it's specifically looking at the legal trade is that this is all this is all data representing uh, wildlife, the wildlife trade that has been like legally declared. So, mm -hmm. um, the interesting thing about this is that this data has actually been available for, you know, the past several years. Um, and it's publicly available. This is not, you know, this isn't, this wasn't like investigative journalism. Uh, nobody had to, uh, do any real, sort of gumshoe digging into, uh, you know, where to find it or anything. This was publicly available data that, that is just part of uh, a government data set, um, and is publicly reported. So, um, sorry, remind me of the second part yeah, of your question. So, again. Um, looking at, was there a, a question that you're right. trying to get at, or is there, right. um, you know, a specific goal right. with the, the study? So this would, this would sort of broadly be classified for Faunalytics as an analysis only project. So, uh, what Faunalytics does is, I mean, Faunalytics does original research that the research department undertakes, um, and in those cases, there would be a hypothesis and pre-registration of the study and, and you know, and, and gathering of data and an and, and analysis of the data afterwards. Um, in this case, the data was already collected. Um, we weren't, you know, there wasn't a hypothesis set out um, at the outset to sort of um, guide the process because we didn't we weren't part of the data gathering process. We simply mm -hmm. took a data set that already existed and uh, the research department um, and a volunteer helped to, uh, you know, process the data and analyze it. Um, so there wasn't really anything that we were, you know, that Faunalytics was looking for um, specifically. Uh, we just wanted to know what the data actually said. Yeah, and I think it's, again, it is interesting because you start to see trends emerge, I guess, yeah. as you start putting it together. Mm -hmm. um, and what would you say are some of the key takeaways in that regard? Was there sort of things that as you looked at this, you went, oh, this is going to be something we as advocates or as a society need to have some hard conversations about? Or mm -hmm. is it more a, this is kind of what we were expecting and here's the information for everyone? That is a very good question. I think, you know, some of the things that were, I suppose, I want to say surprising, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure if any of it is, is super surprising. Um, I think yeah. that 
yeah something that you know becomes really clear when you look at uh the the data and graphs and and the visual representations of things is that you know the vast majority of the wildlife trade is done for you know commercial purposes it's done for um you know and second a close not even a close second after that is you know uh trophy hunting and then there's you know a fraction of it that's used for uh personal use scientific use educational use um but the vast majority of it is uh commercial the sort of second thing that's perhaps not surprising but um important to note i guess is that the the number of refused shipments so when i say a refused shipment i basically mean um you know a shipment that was attempted to be declared as a legal shipment but was refused for not meeting uh criteria uh you know legal criteria that would make it uh you know legal to import uh refused shipments are extremely rare we're talking you know hovering between one to 2% a year, pretty consistently, no, no matter the volume of, of trade that's being done, those refused shipments kind of stay around the one to 2% mark. So what does, does that mean that only one to 2% of the wildlife trade is illegal? Uh, absolutely not. Um, all that means is that enforcement and, um, enforcement is only catching about one to 2% of the of the illegal trade that's that's attempting to pass as the legal trade. The rest of the illegal trade that's happening is really happening sort of in the shadow of this larger um, of this larger phenomena of the of the legal trade. And in fact, we don't really know if if the um, if the legal trade is larger than the illegal trade, if they're the same size, or if the illegal trade is much much bigger. Um, we do know that the illegal trade exists obviously like poaching and and those types of activities are uh you know to greater or lesser degrees uh pretty rampant in in certain parts of the world and uh lots of species suffer because of it so those are things that are kind of you know not necessarily surprising i guess um when it comes to things that you know maybe are surprising um, I think, you know, the scope of, of the trade is, uh, one, I mean, you can, you can really find pretty much any, mm. uh, you know, pretty much any species, any, um, you know, taxa that's involved in this. Um, I think something that might be surprising for people to know is, you know, the, the types of items, you know, top 10 in, in the top 10 items by strictly by number, um, you have live specimens, uh, which are, you know, live, live animals. Um, but something that's traded in, uh, an even higher proportion are, are shell products. So, you know, things like <laughs> seashells and conches and, and all these types of things that, mm -hmm. uh, would, um, you know, that, that would, act as homes for wildlife that might uh, actually contain wildlife within them uh, that might be, you know, part of, uh, you know, part of an animal's, um, part of an animal's body. Um, so, you know, that's, that's something that, you know, I didn't, I personally yep. am surprised to see. Um, I kind of had a, a sense that, that live specimens would be um, pretty broadly traded by number. Um, Correct. Um, but when you look at, uh, you know, we, the analysis shows sort of top 10 items or top 15 sort of items by weight or, or by number. Um, but there's so many more. I mean, we're just, we're just talking again, it's just like almost any, <laughs> any possible sort of yeah. item or, uh, animal under the sun that you can think of has probably been imported or, or exported for, you know, for, for money as part of this trade. 
Yeah, the, looking at that specific chart, it's uh, overall import value by description uh, on the page, which lays out, I believe it's 15, 10 or 15, as you mentioned. Yeah. And uh, Shell is number one, two, a little over 2.2 billion line in terms of value import. And that, that one surprised me too. But as you were talking, I remembered as a kid going to Florida sure. and you go and you pick up seashells. Mm -hmm. And as a kid, of course, you have absolutely no idea that those seashells are on the beach because they also then go back out into the ocean mm -hmm. and they may be homes for animals or they may be food for another animal. Um, very similar to the lessons I have learned much later in life about things like not taking things out of a forest because it's on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a tree in a forest on the ground seems like nothing to us, but it is a mini ecosystem for potentially thousands of organisms. Um, yep. So that that's an interesting one. The other thing that surprised me was trophy mm -hmm. is all the way on the end. Mm -hmm. And I, I say all the way on the end, the dollar value is still almost two or almost 200 million, mm -hmm. right? 178 million, 501,524 yep. uh, dollars. And, and I, I, I mean, I'm speculating a little bit here, but I, I would, I would speculate that the low value of, of trophy um, imports uh, is partly to do with their, the proportion of them that are, that are brought in. I mean, you know, a, a lot of the, um, uh, a lot of the items that are brought in are not necessarily for, you know, or as a result of trophy hunting. But I would, I would guess that the low value is, is, I mean, maybe this sounds like an odd, uh, like an odd comparison, but you know, you know, when you're sending something via post and you don't want to pay import duties or whatever, mm. or you don't want someone else to have to pay import duties, you mark something as a gift, right? And these are items that are probably imported by the person that um by the person that caught them or by the person that that killed the animal in question um and so you know like when we think about trophy hunting it's important to think about who's doing the trophy hunting and who's getting the hunting trophies i mean it doesn't make yep. much sense to display a hunting trophy that you didn't hunt yourself and so i would imagine that that the sort of low value of of um, hunting trophies is due to two people sort of arbitrarily setting a low value on, um, you know, on a, on an item in question, but hunting trophies probably often include some of the more, um, I guess you could say rare animals or, uh, you know, sort of larger, um, larger species, um, you know, that, yeah. that type of thing. Uh, well, and that's when we hear about people uh, going and hunting grizzlies and wanting to take the paws or the pelt sure. or the head back, right? That's their trophy, and you right. can assign a value at the border to anything. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, if a Canadian Border Service Agency is listening, I would never do that, and it is <laughs> right. illegal to do so. Right. Uh, I want to get into the... the, uh, the Countries of origin, so I've got two questions mm -hmm. about that, but I, I was looking through the ports of entry again, and I found this odd. Mm -hmm. So ports of entry in the U.S., the top five are, are exactly what you expect. Mm -hmm. L.A., New York, Miami, Newark, and San Fran, which is all traditional port cities. Yep. Then you go through Chicago, Dallas, Louisville, Kentucky, Anchorage, Alaska, Houston, Texas, big cities mm -hmm. and other common areas people come in. But right near the bottom of the mm -hmm. list is Pembina, North Dakota, mm -hmm. which has about 500 people in it. And I got to ask, how do they land in this top ports of entry? I mean, that's that's a good question. And, and I wish I could answer it for you. Unfortunately, the the you know, the data itself is not that granular. The, da the data tells us what happened. And why or why, yeah. um, you know, why? Like you said, like it's it's very easy to look at. The sort of top 10 cities and go okay yeah they're all coastal or, or sort of coastal or they have a big you know they have big airports or you know they're kind of travel hubs yeah. or that sort of thing um a place like Pembina, north dakota uh, it's a good that's a good question i mean at, at, at that at that um you know it's it's 1.7 percent of the of the imports uh or it represents 1.7% of the imports. Uh, all of the other ones combined after that only represent, you know, 16% of the imports. So, I mean, I don't want to dismiss it as, as being too, too marginal. I mean, when we're talking about billions of items and species, 
sorry, billions of items and, and specimens, um, you know, 1.7% is still significant. Um, but unfortunately I couldn't tell you why that, that specific, um, yeah. that specific city. It just, it, it feels like a short story waiting to be written, I guess. Um, For sure. And I, I think if, I think if you, if we had sort of busted out the rest of that, that, uh, that final one, all other ports of entry, I'm sure you'd see some really odd places as well yeah uh it's one of those moments where it gets to be a little fun to speculate but apparently mm. we're not allowed to do that um <laughs> i mean you can you can um but you know it's it's speculation so. yes uh we looked down on it when i was in the news industry um you mm. can't just say on the front page i think justin trudeau doesn't know what he's doing uh um, right they, they they frown on that as a news writer uh don't know why apparently now you can but right <laughs> Um, looking at the top 10 countries of origin. So there's two parts here I want to talk about. And one requires a preface. A lot of these nations are Southeast Asia and mm -hmm. you will identify. And I think many of our listeners will identify when we talk about this on social media, I can say for certain, we see a lot of xenophobia and racism emerge. Sure. So, uh, I want to sort of preface by saying we can't judge a nation's people based on where wildlife comes from uh, in terms of this and that we are looking at some of this at a policy level. Um, sure. And while there are a lot of people involved and there's a lot of questions about that, it is a very deep contextual issue in a faraway place that we are not a part of. Sure. Um, and I, I think it's worth noting too that, again, this this analysis is very limited in scope we're looking mm -hmm. at the legal wildlife trade imports into the u.s only you know um but when we think about the wildlife trade it's important to to think about it in terms of a global scope and to keep in mind that the u.s doesn't merely import wildlife and wildlife parts it also exports wildlife mm -hmm. and wildlife parts uh, China also has a top 10 list of countries who are the biggest importers of, um, of, you know, it, it has a, China also has a top 10 countries of origin for wildlife parts that are imported into yep. its borders. And, um, when you're looking at something from the perspective of one country, like the U S, um, yeah, like you said, it's important to to contextualize it, and I think for all of us, it's important to keep in mind that that these, you know, each of these countries uh, also imports items themselves. Um, every country on this list, uh, you know, exports and imports wildlife items, and it's all a web, and um, you know, yeah. it's something that might seem um it, you know you know part of what we're talking about with the wildlife trade are quote unquote like exotic species and so what is exotic in the u.s well uh, i would imagine that you know animals from animals and parts from uh africa asia australia um you know those would be considered exotic in the U.S. Well, what would be considered exotic yeah. in China? Well, probably animals from Europe and animals from South America and North America. Um, this is, you know, what we're looking at here really represents the wildlife trade from the position of one country. It doesn't represent the wildlife trade overall globally. If that makes sense. It does. And it's very well said. Thank you. Um, I always yeah. stumble through that kind of stuff because it makes sense to me, but I don't always know how to express it. Um, <laughs> right. And uh, as I said, I think it's just sometimes it's a matter of language. Uh, we don't understand the language we're using can be problematic for others. So it's, it's going mm -hmm. into it with some compassion and empathy and understanding that we are a part of this and that we are a part of this. Canada's on that top 10 countries of origin list for exports to mm -hmm. the, or imports of wildlife and wildlife species uh, specimens to the United States, yeah. uh, which realistically shouldn't be surprising. We are one of the largest trading partners of the United States, uh, and they are our largest trading partner, I believe. 
what's coming from Canada into the U.S. And I th- I'm going to try and look at that number. We're looking at 273 million. Uh, is that I don't know if that's value or volume though. Uh, that's a uh, volume. Okay. So um, again, you know, unfortunately, with a with a data set like this, we get um, you know we get a sort of overview and and descriptive. Uh, you know, we get the ability to sort of describe the wildlife trade in, in sort of quantitative terms, but we don't necessarily always get all of the dots connected for us as to, you know, why something is a particular way. Um, So, you know, to your question about, you know, what exactly is being imported from Canada? Well, you know, unfortunately they didn't do that um, sort of cross tabulation and, and they didn't, uh, you know, that, that data isn't sort of cross listed that way. Um, that being said, uh, you know, like you said, um, you know, Canada, the U S and Canadian economies are, are, are pretty inextricably linked um, mm-hmm. in many different ways. I mean, they're, they're easily our largest trading partner. Or I, I mean, <laughs> no economist, but I would assume they're easily our largest trading partner, yeah. um, probably both in terms of volume and value. Um, and for, uh, for them, I mean, we, uh, you know, we may not be their largest trading partner, but our proximity to them, um, I think allows for, a lot of sort of fluid trade to happen. Um, also because we sort of share, uh, you know, a continental land mass, I think that, um, the laws around importing certain species or perhaps, um, certain types of meat and that type of thing are, are maybe a little less stringent perhaps than, um, you know, importing meat from say, I don't know. Yeah. Like, you know, Southeast Asia or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Canada is a hotspot for trophy hunting. Um, yep. We know that from from other analysis, um, phonolytics. Uh, Casey Bond uh, dug up an analysis from 2019 that showed that, you know, Canada exported the largest number of legal trophies and trophy parts to the U.S., um, mostly black and brown bears. Um, you know, so th- there are a lot of sort of sensical reasons why we appear on that list even if even if we're sort of down towards the uh you know at the at the bottom of the top 10 (laughs) um that's still i mean you know still being in the top 10 is uh is significant because across the the 15 years that the data represents um you know imports came from over 250 different countries so you know, being in the top 10, even at the bottom of the top 10 is is pretty significant. Absolutely. And again, I think it, it speaks to when we talk about some of these issues and um, where the money is coming and going from, we know that a lot of Canadian outfitters targets northern U.S. residents because it's if you can't hunt it there, come hunt it here and vice versa. Um, Certainly. For example, Canada links on either side of the border. You can trap it and it's protected. Right. Mm-hmm. And the only difference is an arbitrary line on a map somewhere. It's mm-hmm. it's it's quite odd when you start looking at those things. Yeah. Um, and and, you know, another thing the data doesn't really tell us is how much of this stuff is, you know, uh, Anchorage, Alaska is one of the, um, you know, is one of the uh, top ports of entry into the U.S. So. Um, obviously Alaska is not part of the sort of contiguous U S um, mm-hmm. and, you know, we don't know how much of this stuff is sort of crossing the border in a particular way, possibly, possibly being, I don't want to say trafficked cause that, you know, specifically refers to illegal, the illegal trade, but, um, you know, we don't know how much of this stuff is being transported from say Alaska through Canada and eventually to the U S. Um, mm-hmm. but I think we can assume that, that that's happening to a certain degree. And, and like you mentioned, you know, these are, uh, <laughs> to, to a certain degree, sort of arbitrary lines on a map. And, and although, you know, each, each country has its own laws, um, there's a lot of fluidity between, between the two and, and a lot of fluidity in terms of, uh, 
in, in just in terms of this this type of trade in general. Yeah, and uh, it's just another sign of how wonderful globalism can be. Exactly. Um, I wanted to touch on, and we don't need to go in depth on it. This is something I personally find fascinating, and I, I rather darkly enjoyed writing about as a reporter was the organized crime aspect. Mm -hmm. So organized crime likely isn't all that involved in the legal form, but it is most, I would imagine, most certainly linked to it mm -hmm. as part of the illegal mm -hmm. uh, trade. You know, the two are never all that far apart. Yep. Um, again, when we talk about um, organized crime, you mentioned earlier, we don't know how big the illegal wildlife trade is. Mm -hmm. Does that speak to the efficacy of the organized cartels of the world being able to move these things? Um, or does it speak also to corruption? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it speaks to both. And, and I should I should sort of walk that back a little bit. It's not that we don't know how big the the illegal trade is. We do have some sense of it. And there are, you know different government agencies and, and different um, NGOs around the world who are, are tracking the um, the illegal trade. I would say, however, though, that we don't know exactly how big it is. We have some mm -hmm. sort of estimates. Um, and of course, as, as you mentioned, we know that organized crime is uh, involved in this. I mean, you, you can't trade illegal wildlife in the volume that they're being traded without uh you know without an organized crime element to it um you know mm -hmm. when you're talking about shipping things across uh you know around the world um it, it you know it's, it's just not being done by individual smugglers on an individual basis these are um yeah you know it, it, the the trade is just too big to be uh all all just uh atomized individuals that are that are doing it of their own volition um and especially when you're talking about the kind of money that's involved um you know when you look at the value of the legal trade i mean you're you're talking in the billions of dollars a year um the illegal trade is probably more lucrative by by some order of magnitude and the reason for that is because the items are more rare or they're, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of baked right into, to the trade itself. I mean, these are, you know, when you're talking about yeah. trading, for example, rhino horns, um, well, rhino horns are highly sought after and very rare and illegal. And so, that's a sort of trifecta of factors that that makes the the price and the potential payoff for for participating in the illegal trade really high compared to say you know importing a ton of shells or whatever. Um, so you know I think in some ways it, w whenever you have a black market like that, um, it's sort of inevitable for for. Um, organized crime to be involved uh i would say that corruption i mean plays a big role like the uh the U united nations office on drugs and crime uh released a report in 2020 looking specifically at you know traffic and protected species and um that's very different from what the phonolytics analysis looked at you know uh again we looked specifically at the legal trade um but you know the things that they found uh, really very much, uh, really very much underscore the sort of the size and scale of the illegal trade, the amount, you know, the kind of mind-boggling statistics and networks that are involved, and that these types of networks and logistics can't really they can't really exist entirely out of the view of government. They, part of the reason mm -hmm. that they exist is because of uh, government corruption and because in, you know, in many places, um, uh, 
you know, people make very little money, even government employees or, or military employees might make uh, a fraction of the wage that we, that we might think is appropriate say, in North America. And that's another sort of way yep. to contextualize um, who participates in the illegal wildlife trade and who doesn't. As we were saying before, you know, it's very easy for us to look at, say, you know, Asia or Southeast Asia and say, well, that's where all of the illegal wildlife is coming from. They must be barbaric or, you know, something like that. And, you know, when, when you're talking about <laughs> making money and, and uh, you know, trying to raise your um, quality of life past a certain point of poverty, I mean, people will do almost anything. And, um, I, I truly believe that many of the people involved in, in the wildlife trade up and down, um, they don't do it because they hate animals or they're, you know, they're, uh, you know, somehow barbaric or whatever other, uh, you know, word people want to use to describe it. It's quite simply very lucrative and, um, that's, it's, that that level of income that you get from participating in something like that is probably you know is probably far out of the reach of a lot of people um along that chain and um you know i i think that again like in in north america these these things it's not that there's no government corruption here or or corruption of you know U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and yeah, I, I have, I have no doubt that there are bad apples among among all of it, and it doesn't take too many bad apples to really mm -hmm. um, to allow the illegal trade to keep going. Um, I don't, I don't think it's that. For example, you know, the entire Chinese government is corrupt, and that's why they're such a big, um, you know, source of. Uh, source of illegal wildlife uh, species and parts for the rest of the world. Um, it doesn't take the whole government to be corrupt for, for that type of thing to flourish. It just takes the right people in the right positions along the chain uh, to help keep it happening. Yep. And the folks who are involved in organized crime are very, very skilled at identifying and working those individuals um, either through threats or money or power or whatever they may be looking for. And and to your point, when we look at most crime from a sociological point of view, mm -hmm. we can see social issues behind it. Uh, again, that's where we speak to context and empathy and understanding. There is a lot more going on in people's lives than um, sometimes we get from headlines. Certainly. Uh, and speaking of uh, Asia and this this whole concept, uh, you end the report talking about the I like it, it's the pandemic asterisk in future directions. Um, but you speak to wet markets, and that is something we all talked about mm. very obviously, and some folks are still talking about very very directly um, as the origin of COVID, and we must stop them because it's the reason that we're here. And I think your report very graciously points out that. Yes, that's a possibility, but that's not the only possibility. And it's certainly not the only close call or actual pandemic we have seen come from animal agriculture, not just wet markets. Certainly, certainly. And, you know, it's, I mean, for for better or worse, and, you know, I think in, in many ways worse, um, you know, the pandemic really... Uh, underscored the link um, between, you know, consuming animals and uh, zoonotic diseases. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, <laughs> because of the particular, you know, socio-political dynamics of, of, you know, where it came from and, and how it happened and, and this sort of, um, you know, even just the name wet market is, is, uh, kind of a problematic idea. Um, mm -hmm. you know, we, we have, we've, we've certainly encountered a situation, I think where, where animal advocates are really, um, 
are are really um, struggling to uh, figure out a way to talk about this that that isn't going to um, demonize a particular culture or a particular place. I mean, well, I should say, I mean, some animal advocates are, are trying to do that. Other animal advocates have gone fully into, you know, racist mode and are um, yep. happily uh, trying to point fingers in a particular direction and not really taking taking stock of the fact that, you know, I mean, the U.S. has some of the biggest factory farms on, on the planet and, and each of those could be an incubator for zoonotic diseases um, at any given time. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's important to, to talk about the origins of COVID-19. I think that, um, you know, f for our part uh, or for Faunalytics part, you know, uh, we have, we have tried to um, present a sort of, a sort of nuanced view of this, um, but it's difficult. Uh, it's 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 a difficult thing to navigate in advocacy, as uh, so many advocates are are really trying to take this as an opportunity to make change for animals. Um, you know, I, I think advocates need to ask themselves if they're making a, a positive change for animals at the expense of you know, someone else. Um, and although I'm sure a lot of animal advocates would be fine with that, uh, exchange, um, mm. you know, I, I think it's important for us to, to try and think about these things in a more nuanced way and, and be able to talk about the issue, um, in, in more contextual terms and, and to, and to locate ourselves within it. Um, not just, point fingers at it as if it's an outside phenomenon. Absolutely. And just to your point too, uh, in terms of talking about consumption, uh, and you will have better data than I, but the most recent one I could look up very quickly on the internet uh, showed the US meat consumption per capita is, it looks to be easily the highest in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and with that volume of meat consumption, and again, we won't go into a big tangent about this, but Fonalix will have some of this data, I'm, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, with that meat consumption comes the requirement for factory farming, mm -hmm. uh, which then increases animal density, decreases husbandry, and all of those other practices, and becomes the ideal incubator for a virus to spread and grow. Um, like, as a reporter, I covered H1N1, H2N5, West Nile virus, and another one that I can't remember right now, uh, long before, you know, SARS uh, even broke the news, and then this coronavirus. And most of these communicable diseases that are out there that are devastating economies and people come from wildlife or domesticated animals that we farm yeah uh so i think like you know if we're gonna try and point fingers you know maybe we point at the people ordering rather than the people doing the uh preparing mm -hmm. um but that's a again a large conversation with lots of philosophy and ethics behind it um and not what we're getting into but final Lynch does have a lot of really good information on that for folks who are looking for more um, I want to wrap up though with this, what can people do? Because this is a, it's a broad international issue. It feels overwhelming. How can I possibly do something about $2.2 billion worth of shells being imported to the United States? It feels insurmountable. Uh, so what, what can folks do who are concerned about this, who want to learn more and want to get involved? Right. Well, it's, that's always the sort of million dollar question, right? Is what can individual advocates do and, and what can, you know, group groups of advocates do together? Um, I think obviously for a lot of, um, for a lot of, uh, you know, animal advocates out there who may already be vegan or vegetarian, who may not, um, you know, purchase or consume animal products, um, you're already doing something <laughs> by continuing to yep. not consume or, or, uh, purchase those products. Um, there, there are always, 
sort of individual actions you can do, you know, no matter how big or small these things, you know, do make some impact. So, um, you know, I, I think you could look at any of the items on the list, for example, you know, skins or shells or meats or, you know, anything like that. And, and think of ways that you can personally individually get involved, whether it's, you know, campaigning to have certain exotic meats banned from your state or from your province, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, doing public awareness campaigns to uh, raise awareness about the, the damage caused by removing shells from their natural environments. Um, there's, there's all kinds of things that individuals can do uh, on that sort of personal level, you know, depending on your I mean, I, th I feel like everybody's energy is, is tapped right now and, <laughs> and people are really sort of struggling with these, uh, you know, not just with, I mean, not just with these issues, but with day-to-day -day life, um, you know, uh, yep. and then I think it's, it's important to, to, you know, pressure government pressure, um, you know, put pressure publicly on governments to, um, start to move laws in a more humane and, and compassionate direction where, you know, um, you know, things like trophy hunting might be made to be illegal. Um, there, there are all kinds of ways that people can, can get involved. And, and for, for me personally, I tend to always, um, tell people that, you know, the, the best, thing that you can do to get involved is to identify the thing that you're passionate about and that you feel like you can sustain. So if, if you feel very, uh, strongly about wildlife issues, then, then there's a whole range of, of sort of action items that you can, uh, that you can pick up from this. It gives you a sense of, you know, the places where, uh, where items are, imported into it gives you a sense of the value you know the the dollar value of different items if you're interested in kind of doing a a calculation of what would have the biggest you know financial impact on the industry um there's a lot here to dig into if if wildlife issues are something that you're passionate about um that being said you know like you said a lot of this stuff is um is out of our hands. It's, it's difficult and, uh, it's difficult for us to have an, an impact. And that's always something that is hard for advocates to wrap their minds around. Um, you know, I think you can see it in, in other issues as, as well, like say with the research animal industry, um, it's very difficult for mm -hmm. individual animal advocates to have an impact there because a lot of it is government mandated or that sort of thing. So, um, with any, with any animal issue, I think it's important to, to do some research and sort of identify the leverage points. I think in the case of the wildlife trade, those yep. leverage points really are, um, commercial establishments that sell these types of, you know, whether it's live animals or parts or whatever, um, it's important to identify the, the commercial entities that, that sell this stuff, that import this stuff. And then it's important to, uh, you know, leverage whatever energy we can towards the government, uh, you know, the government of the particular country in question, uh, whether it's, you know, if you're a U.S. citizen, the U.S. government, or if you're a Canadian citizen, the Canadian government, um, to, you know, to, to make changes to what is, what is allowed. Um, you know, as, as we've been sort of talking about throughout the hour, um, getting rid of the legal trade won't necessarily mean that the illegal trade disappears. Um, but I think the harder, you know, the harder we can make it for, uh, for the legal wildlife trade to happen. Um, I think, you know, it makes it, you know, at the, at the risk of driving things underground, I think it makes it, um, a little bit better for animals to have less of this legal trade going on. I think that would also make it easier to call out when we see it, right? Um, right? Like if, if we accept that this isn't okay, 
when we do see something, it's a little easier to go, hey, how did that get here? Um, and I'm going to echo again what you said, though, about um, if you're vegetarian or vegan, you're already making a daily impact. And I can say, uh, and, and you may have felt this way as well, as someone who works on these issues every day, uh, I, I was having a chat with a friend yesterday on a lovely walk uh, in, in Hamilton, and they mentioned, hey, you know, I've been feeling a little weird about this, and I was talking to my partner about maybe having a little less meat in our diet. And I said, yeah, you know what? That sounds great. If you want some recipes, mm -hmm. let me know. I can come bring some food for you. We'll go out and introduce you to some stuff. And with all of the other things I do, I mm -hmm. feel sometimes that that is my most effective way to make change because it's a very literal direct certainly right we can measure that and we know it's having a positive impact and if everybody does a little bit of that it goes an awful long way real yep. quick of course uh, the other thing that we need is if you live in pembina north yep. dakota to <laughs> ask some questions and get back to us uh there's a mystery there waiting to be uncovered <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and uh, i i i think you're right you know people um on an individual level, uh, the the change that people are able to make um, can feel very small and limited. But uh, you know, I th I think we've seen you know, especially over the last like four or five years, um, animal advocacy really gaining a lot of momentum. Um, you know, mm -hmm. veganism and veg vegetarianism a lot more in the news, and and people are becoming more aware that the impact, you know, the, the impact of their, uh, consumer choices is having on animals. Um, so, so I think we are seeing a, you know, I think we are seeing some watershed moments, um, happening. I know that it feels slow, you know, like, you know, similar to say the, the environmental, uh, movement, you know, there's a, there's a lot of focus on, um, climate change and we're in this situation where it feels like the changes that we should have made should have happened <laughs> 10 years ago, you know? Um, but we, you know, we live in the here and now. And so, you know, any changes that we can make and any actions that we can do from this point forward, uh, you know, will, will help to, to add a drop in the bucket and, and, you know, I think it takes a lot of a lot of individuals, a lot of groups to work individually and together to make a change. You can check out the Wildlife Trade Report at faunalytics.org. I also recommend following Faunalytics on social media for great advocacy tools, posts, and shareables. I want to thank Carol for sharing his time with me and all of you for listening. I hope you'll follow me on social as well, at Howie Michael on Instagram and the Defender Radio Facebook page. Make sure you're also tracking the fur bears on Insta, Twitter, and Facebook for the latest updates, action alerts, and more. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to be kind and to stay informed and stay strong. Stay strong.